Hello, it is July 2nd, 2021. This is season 12, episode three. I'm Matt O'Neill, and on the other side of the Zoom is... Hi, everyone. I'm Erin Hudson. Hi, Erin. How are you? Doing okay. This is the Soybean Pest Podcast, and hey, let's just jump right into it. Let's talk about pests, Erin. Doesn't have to be a soybeans. What are you hearing from your people from the extension agronomist what's the word in the street what what's happening um since we last met just a week ago um there had been a lot of talk chatter about corn rootworm adults emerging around the state and also japanese beetle emerging so just lots of questions what kind of questions can we answer any um, people are asking about rescue treatments for both species. Um, and people were also asking me some questions about two-spotted spider mite, but some parts of Iowa got some rain since we last chatted. And so that has sort of dampened some of the anxiety that people have been having about spider mites. Um, we did not get rain we're here in Iowa, central Iowa. Ames, man, it was, it, we were promised there was a hint of rain over the weekend. We didn't get any. Um, and yeah, it's dry. And I was driving around, uh, uh, around Ames, outside of Ames in the crop fields and that pineapple and corn looks, uh, it's everywhere. Um, beans still look really stunted and small. That dry conditions, I'm assuming, is just ideal for spider mites. Yeah, it can be. When the edges are uh, crispy, field edges, um, sometimes the mites will move into field interiors. But I guess it kind of depends on where you are. Um, if you, Especially if you're drought stressed last year, it sort of carries over into this year. But I haven't really heard of any spider mites, and my crew is looking for them at some of our research sites and haven't been able to see them either. Yeah, they're tricky to, tricky to scout for, uh, being so tiny and um, kind of hard to identify. Uh, my old eyes are really challenged to see them uh, until they blow up into large numbers and you get webbing and netting, and yeah, it's, that's when it's really too late. Good luck with that scouting. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a crew with young eyeballs, so they can see them fairly easily. Good on you to take advantage of those young eyes. How about gall midge? Any updates on that? Anything to talk about? Uh, we've had a lot of people with their eyes open looking for gall midge in the western side of the state. And as of now, I have reports from industry agronomists and also some Iowa State field agronomists and also some members of my lab who are doing research on soybean gummage. And, and so far, we've been able to find uh, active larval infestations in nine counties. These aren't any new counties. They were previously infested. So it is in areas where I would expect to see them. See them. And so that's happening right now. And I would expect the numbers to in, increase. Uh, we had about 30 counties infested last year. So at least 30 counties, maybe even more. 30 counties. Um Wow. And so this activity in the nine counties, is it consistent with what you've seen in years past? Is it any lower or higher than? Well, sort of right at the beginning. So people are noting individual plants at this point along field edges. 
uh, close to where fields were infested last year. So it's a typical progression of finding a few plants and then it, it generally intensifies along the border and then moves to the field interior with the additional generations that are produced. Do you have a sense of how far into a field uh, these critters can go, how big a patch they can damage? Uh, it really depends on the size and the shape of the field and the surrounding landscape. So there are some fields that are kind of squished into the landscape and so they're not a regular shape. And so they have a, um, you know, they're not the typical rectangle. And so you could have midges move all the way across because it's not, you know, it's more like a triangle uh, built on uh, near water or a waterway. Um, but then there are larger fields, uh, two, three, 400 acres where um, you would see midges moving a couple hundred feet in from the field edge. So I think even, you know, more than 400 feet from the field edge, they could move throughout a growing season. So they do have the ability to move at least short distances uh, during the adult flights. And you get multiple generations, right? So um, it's not like rootworms where you just get one generation, corn borer, maybe two to three aphids, multiple. They're more like aphids where you'd get multiple generations? Yeah, we're still trying to understand that because uh, in, in 2020, the adult emergence was somewhat continuous in some areas. So you didn't have discrete uh, generation times. And so we're thinking there's probably at least three, three generations that can be produced, but it is sort of overlapping. So you don't really have times of adult flight and then you sort of have a gap in that. So still trying to learn more about how, how they move and how they reproduce in the summertime. And uh, is it, Fair to say they're pretty sporadic. There's a lot of variation in uh, across fields and within a field in terms of how abundant they can be and you know, how long they'll persist in a field. Or is it pretty consistent? You know, if you once you're infested, you're infested for multiple years. Uh, yeah, I definitely think that they have more local movement. So those fields that were infested, say two years ago. And if they're moving back into soybeans this year, they're very likely to be infested. Again, um, the spread is continuing. So they are dispersing to new counties in the five-state region. But um, it is pr pretty consistent from, it's not year to year because they, they will only feed on soybeans. So they do have to move generally to new fields every year. Um, not a lot of people are in continuous soybean production. Does anybody in Iowa do Bean on bean? Some, there's some people that like to grow a lot of beans because they're a specialty niche. Oh, okay. But those or are. Or maybe they just had enough of corn rootworm and so they want to do something different. So they're trying to break up the life cycle. Yeah, crazy stuff happens. All right. Well, hey, if it works for them, it isn't crazy, right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, anything else to talk about with regard to pest update? Pest updates. I think last week we noted, uh, surprisingly, there were some aphids found in central Iowa and a sea treatment trial that we were evaluating just south of Ames. And those numbers have dropped quite a bit. So it is unclear if the predation has been fairly effective or if they're just dispersing now because the plants are a little bit bigger and there were a lot of winged individuals sure. on those foundational colonies. So um, they're a little bit harder to find. 
And I haven't, uh, we haven't been able to find soybean aphid at our northern, three northern research field sites. Um, like we, that's not too typical. I mean, I would expect to see them in July. So hopefully they'll show up soon. And in terms of like outbreaks, uh, you wouldn't expect that to happen until late in July, maybe early August? Uh, yeah, I mean, typically the, if people need to treat because the aphids have exceeded the threshold of 250 per plant, generally that happens around the third week of August. So it happens fairly late in the season. So um, that's just because the aphids don't arrive until you generally July. So to find them early is sort of a red flag, but um, the populations don't seem to be persisting in that area. So it just requires some constant monitoring. But generally, my experience is that the thresholds are exceeded like that third week of August. Okay. Um, I might add a weird insect to our list of uh, pests. We collected uh, some Eurasian hemp borer last year from a field that was infested and we put them into uh, diet, little, little cups with artificial diet to see if we could rear the last generation through to adulthood. And we did this back in, oh geez, was it October, September, when we split stalks and put them into the cups. And they went into a pupal stage, and that was back in October, and kept them in a a room, kept them dark and cool, looked at them this week, and adult moths were inside the cups. We got kind of excited about this, me and the uh, graduate student, Eva Ayer, because one, we didn't, th we didn't know if this was even possible. You know, it takes some triggers to get an insect to go from the pupil stage to the adult stage, and it wasn't clear that those triggers were going to be in our growth chamber. Um, wasn't even clear if they were still alive, but uh, they were. And this was, uh, yeah, we were kind of excited. We even, Aaron, guess what? We even high-fived. It's like, whoo. <laughs> so, high-fived Eva Air or the moths? Um, Eva Air, because we wanted to keep the moths intact just to nice. confirm their, uh, um, their species. So I think, I don't know what this means yet. You know, a lot of this is uh, first time, for me, maybe for many entomologists to study this critter, but I think it means that Eurasian hemp borer may be active right now, if what we saw in the lab is consistent with what's happening in the field. But um, So there's no, no literature about degree day accumulation or anything like that? No, no, there's very limited literature on this critter. Um, I wonder how closely they're related to stock borer. Yeah, they're... Um, they're a family of uh, leps that are that stock borers are within, um, but this species is not native to North America. It was first identified back in the or found back in the fifties in the Midwest. There's some work on it done out of Illinois in the seventies, and they were just tracking like how many generations and how big the populations get and what kind of uh, critters might feed on them. Um, but after that, nothing, nothing at all. So, uh, and why, why would there be, you know, it's illegal. It was illegal to grow hemp up until 2018. So, um, yeah, this, you know, industry as it grows, there'll probably be more, uh, uh, 
interest, more need for studying the insect paths that are there, but they just, we haven't been observations, studies of them feeding on uh, the crop. So anyway, that was one. Uh, wanted to share a little high five moment with uh, you and our listener. Um, anything else? Mm, that's pretty much the highlight, except for those folks who grow alfalfa. I think potato leaf hopper is causing some heartburn, uh, or I should say hopper heartburn in some fields that don't have the resistance uh, in the genetics. And that's been going on uh, for a while, or is that a recent thing? Uh, maybe within the last week, maybe 10 days in Iowa, yeah. Well, good luck. Um, if we can, I'd like to move on because I have a fun question mark insect trivia for okay. you. Um, so this isn't about, well, it's not necessarily about an insect, but it's about insects and uh, a program that the USDA created several years ago called um, well, it's under the Conservation Reserve Program, and it's a conservation practice, uh, CP, uh, number 42. This is pollinator habitat. So farmers, landowners, uh, could participate in this CRP program, CP42, and take a little bit of land out of production and in its place plant in a diverse mix of uh, plants, flowering plants, that are identified as being beneficial for pollinators. All right. You've heard of this, right? Aaron? Yes. All right. So just want to make sure our listeners heard of it. Um, so we have a, uh, I've been working with a really bright uh, PhD student, Haley Summers here, who's interested in um, how conservation programs are used and uh, what influences their use on the land. And uh, she just got done doing, uh, doing an analysis and she's presenting a poster um, at an agronomy meeting in about three weeks. Uh, and she shared with me some of the analysis because I had asked her some questions about this practice. And here's the question, right? What percentage of Iowa farmers who participate in CP42, CP42 put CP42 on the part of their farm that has the lowest corn suitability rating. And corn suitability rating is a way of um, evaluating how potentially profitable a farmland could be. The higher the CSR, the higher the potential yield from that field or that portion of the field. So what percentage of Iowa farmers who participate in CP42 put that pollinator habitat on a part of their farm that has the lowest CSR rating? Looking for an answer in, in, in a percentage. Like 25? So, 20, so you're saying 25% of the farmers who sign up for CP42 put it in the least profitable part of their farm? Yes. Okay, that's... That's doubly interesting to me because when we went into this, I was thinking that farmers would, or landowners, would select the least profitable part of their farm, the part of their farm that has the, the uh, lowest CSR rating. 
So I was expecting the percentage to be really high, and like 80%. But you're saying the opposite. You're saying you expect it to be lower. Why do you think that? Well, you have, you're assuming that people know what the corn suitability ratings are, that farmers know what those ratings are for their farm, and that they would um, connect the dots um, about putting pollinator habitat into areas that aren't their most profitable areas. So that's a, a big assumption. Aaron, you are, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to stop you. Go ahead. No, so I, I, I don't know if that's always true. Um, and... Sometimes it, they have a lot more to consider than corn suitability ratings. Um, there's a lot of other factors that they would have to go uh, to think about before the implement, implementation of pollinator habitat. So access, um, other things come into play besides just the, uh, that. And, and I'm also curious to know how you got this data. Like they said, I, I put it in the lowest CR2 rating. Yeah, it, um, I'll ask, I'll, I'll, I'll try to answer your first question or your last question first. Uh, we've got a, a, a data set of the, um, um, of where these patches are in the landscape. And uh, we needed this for some of our uh, pollinator work because we wanted to know in our prairie strips if there were these CP43 patches around or CP42 patches around the prairie strips that might uh, confound our experiments. Um, and then we started asking some additional questions like, okay, well, where are these? And I, I, my simple brain thought, well, I think these are gonna be in the lowest yielding parts of the farm uh, because a farmer would like to take those out of production to increase their net yield for a given uh, piece of land. And I've heard from people who work in conservation and in agronomy uh, say farmers have access to precision agricultural tools that allow them to know where in their fields the lowest yielding parts are. And CSR is just another rating measurement system to help you know, identify those. So I was thinking this would be higher than what you said, seven... 10, 12%. Um, I was thinking it'd be more like 80%. I think I said 25. 25, sorry, 25%. Um, I was thinking more 80%. And, um, but I, I think, I mean, you, you uh, well, I, so the answer, or at least our estimate, uh, Haley's estimate is 45%. 45% of the CP42 was placed in, uh, the part of the farm that had the uh, lowest corn suitability rating. So she's able to get data on individual farms. So you that can, low, how would you know? How would you know? So you the CSR ratings are available through a USDA data set, yeah. and we can identify where that CP forty two is on the land. And um, so, who owns the land? Who owns the land? That's a you said a, a farmer. Y your question was, uh, is the are they putting the CP forty two on the lowest corn suitability rating? How do you know who owns all this land? 
Um, Farmers have stuff spread all over the place. So how, how would you know? Yeah, so this isn't, so good point. This isn't asking, we didn't, this wasn't a survey of farmers. This was, you know, we didn't ask a farmer, hey, where did you decide to put this? Rather, we asked in a field, in a, in a field, where, where was it located? Was it located in the part of the field that had the lowest or the highest uh, CSR rating? So it's not a, it's not a survey. It's not a, um, no, it's a, it's a more objective measure of this, uh, uh, what would you call it, relationship. Um, but you're- You're taking like a first, like a, a portion of a field, you're taking an individual field. That's right. And, and looking at where they put it in that field, not necessarily on their farm. You don't have that information. Yeah, I th what, we're, yeah, we, you, a parcel is probably a better I mean, you're taking like a field, an individual field, and looking where they put the CP42, is that right? That's right, that's okay, right. So you're not asking a farmer, of no. all the land you own, where did you put CP42, and what is a CSR2 rating for that? No, that's right, that's right. Okay. Yeah, so we didn't, we, yeah, yeah. So farmers have multiple parcels um, that they could, uh, that they are, that, that they could be responsible for, we didn't ask amongst all of those. We just right. we just looked where at that parcel this, the CP forty two was located. And you and you found out about half the time they're putting it in the they're not putting it in the lowest rating. That's, that's right. But that's half the time they are. Yeah, yeah. And um, so the next question is: Well, what is influencing them? What what is it? What are the drivers? And we don't know. That's a more I think subjective uh, set of questions because you have to ask the farmer, okay, well, what what influenced you? Um, there are some indirect ways you can get at that. You could ask, you know, are they close to a house? Are they close to a road? You know, is it accessibility that is a bigger driver for this than profitability? So could could you or Haley tell me how much variation could be within one field, the rating? That's a good question. Um, that I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious to know for like an average size field, you know, how much variation could you have within a field? Yeah, one. I don't know for the state of Iowa. I, I've heard, what I what I've heard is that ratings like this or evaluations of um, fields, you know, vary from you know, this. The variation varies from state to state. So Iowa compared to say Michigan is pretty homogenous. You know, our soils and our farms are um, fairly consistent. But if you go into like the state of Michigan that got hit heavy by the glaciers, they have a lot of variation there. You know, so you could have multiple soil types within one field in a way that you know you wouldn't necessarily see in Iowa. So that's a you know. But you just said that they were that they they did vary because they sometimes they, chose the high and sometimes chose the low. Right. So, so there is some variation within field. That's right. There can there is variation in fields, but the amount of variation in Iowa is not as great as other states. Um, but I you know I'm not a Aaron. I'm an entomologist. <laughs> not a soil scientist, um, but I am an entomologist that and I you know. So are you? So are all of us uh, that are 
interested in the factors that uh, influence, affect the the programs, the pro, the the recommendations, the practices that uh, we develop that would affect insects. And CP42 is one of those practices, right? It was designed uh, to help pollinators. And uh, there's evidence that backs that up, right? Uh, pollinators need forage. Where that forage gets placed um, is important. It's important because how connected it is and, and where it is in, the, in, the surround, in, in relation to the surrounding landscape can affect what benefits you get from it. And, and with my simple brain, I thought, yeah, farmers are probably, I, I think farmers are using things like CP42, this pollinator habitat, to help them take land that is not profitable out of production such that their overall parcel is more economically um, beneficial. But Haley's analysis suggests that that's not necessarily the case and that there's probably some other social issues or, or management issues that are involved. But you said something I thought that was really, really interesting when, when you're answering the question, which was, not all, I, th I think I heard you say this, not all farmers have access to precision agriculture or the data. Well, that's that, not what I said. Oh, what'd you say? But I do think that's true. Not all farmers have access. But um, I said, I don't assume that every farmer knows what their CS2 rating is. Yeah, and that could be because they don't have access to that technology, that information. Yeah. And I don't, do you have a sense of how many farmers do have access to that or, or do use precision agriculture? I do not. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting because um, in the discussions I've had with uh, applied entomologists about how to improve pest management, we get to this point in the conversation where we say, uh, well, if farmers have access to precision ag tools, they could more specifically apply pesticides to parts of their field. And I think what we're doing is making the assumption that all farmers have that. And I, I, don't, I don't think that's the case, but I have no idea, right? I mean, I don't know, you know what percentage and, um, and what type of farmers do. Um, so do you, do you know uh, how, it only takes one acre to be enrolled in CP42, is that right? It's at least uh, one acre. I, uh, that's a good question. I, there is a maximum. I think the maximum you can get to is something like ten acres, mm -hmm. um, but I, I'm I'm not sure what the minimum is. Yeah. Why Why do you ask? Well, just so you know, if if say they want to enroll and they're doing like one to five acres or one to ten acres, and they have really large fields or sort of you know depending on the landscape they may just be trying to squeeze it in somewhere and not necessarily thinking about some of the other agronomic factors. So ease of like, be, it does take some work, right? Because yeah, the first yeah. couple of years you have to, it's not just plant it and forget it. You, it does take some maintenance. So if they can't access that, um, you know, it's a concern as well for them. Yeah. And I think it would be good to know those things so that in the future, if you wanted to like couple these types of practices with uh, more targeted approaches so that we take the, the you know, low 
corn suitability rated parts or the highly erodible land or whatever out of production, um, you provide farmers with the, the tools, the recommendations, the practices that can get that done. And yeah, I think you're right with uh, the plants that are recommended, that are required for use in CP42, they're native flowering perennials that require some management. You can't just drop them in the ground, seed them in and walk away. You're gonna have to go in and mow down the annuals that show up the next year and the second year so that you allow those perennials a chance to outcompete them. And yeah, that, that would make a lot of sense that you know, you're not gonna put that patch on a sloping land that's you know, a quarter of a mile away from the, the entry point to the field. You know? So anyway, I, this wasn't one of those questions where like there's a right and wrong and you should have studied this in class or whatever. This was more a question to kind of stimulate conversation. And I, I find this really interesting because I, I think there's potential in many of the programs that the USDA offers that can hit sort of multiple targets or address multiple issues. Um, but there are restrictions, constraints to those. And knowing what those constraints are is help, I think, ultimately helpful if we want to get the biggest bang for our buck, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm not too familiar with the program, but um, it'd be interesting to know, like in a few years, some of the impacts it's making, which it sounds like you're doing some of that with some of your STRIPS research uh, to a different degree. Yeah, yeah, STRIPS CP43 is is very different from CP42. CP43 is, um, it's, it's more um, uh, restrictive in that it's uh, gotta be on the contour, you know, it, it's at a field edge or within the farm. CP42 doesn't have those restrictions. Uh, however, CP43 is uh, trying to accomplish multiple things. It's not just pollinator habitat. In fact, that's not even in the name. Uh, we know that it improves pollinators, abundance and diversity, but its uh, main goal is preventing soil erosion, sediment movement off the field, nutrient movement off the field. And uh, in that regard, it has some um, additional steps to put it in place. Um, CP42, uh, not so, that's not the case. And maybe one way to wrap this up is to say how um, exciting it is to talk about this and, and why, we're talking, why we're talking about it in Iowa is because Iowans uh, adopted this in, in, in a great degree. Uh, we have about a I think it's a quarter of a million acres in CP42 in the state of Iowa. If we're not, if we're not the, the, the uh, state with the highest amount of adoption or use, we're in the top two. Um, and that's, that's cool. That's, that's exciting because it, it suggests that farmers, landowners are uh, taking this seriously. They're taking advantage of this practice. And um, that's good. That's a good thing. Yeah, I didn't realize it was that high of adoption. Yeah, I think there's 18,000 patches of CP42 in the state. Over 18,000 patches. That's I didn't know that until uh, Haley helped summarize this. I was like, wow, that's that's really cool. Yeah. We're more than corn and soybeans, right? Yeah, yes. 
All right, anything else to talk about? I think I'm up to date. Um, I've got a field day uh, through the Iowa Honey Producers Association. I'm gonna talk uh, at that event on July 10th. I think that uh, information's available on their website. Our colleague, extension colleague, uh, Randall Cass is also talking there. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, prairie strips, uh, how they can help pollinators, how they might be able to improve beekeeping, make honeybees more productive. And I'll talk a little bit about the other bees besides honeybees that can be found in Iowa. There's a lot of them. Uh, and I wanna share some of that with the, the honey, the Iowa Honey Producers Association. Do you have any upcoming events? Uh, just a lot of field days at the research farms coming up in the ne in next couple of weeks. So I'll be out and about. Good luck. Hopefully you'll be, hopefully it'll be cooler than it is today and tomorrow. Eek. All right, Aaron, that's all I got. Should we okay. end? Should we wrap it up? I get, I think so. Thank you. Thank you very much. See you Bye next week. Bye.